Welcome back to part two of the Brett Boone Podcast. On this special episode, Brett sits down with former MLB general manager and current MLB network analyst, John Hart. Besides the no one where Brett Boone's Mariners come in and spank you guys in the postseason. Oh, I remember that. I remember that well. I remember that well. I'm kidding. Besides, but, but besides that, Johnny, all right, you end up leaving. It went to, after- by the way, it did go to game five. Yeah, but and we were I, just we we, you know what we wanted to extend it. We didn't want to be sitting home too, too much, you know, re- resting on our laurels. We had no idea we were about to go get spanked by the Yankees. We thought it was a foregone conclusion that miracle year we had. But yeah, I know. you end up le- awesome. you end up leaving the uh, the Indians after a one. You go over to the Rangers. Uh, what what kind of spurred that on? Uh, time time for a change or. What was yeah, it? You're going to go you work know, for Tom Hicks in, I mean, in uh, Texas. Yeah, I think the, um, uh, you know, uh, Dick Jacobs had uh, sold the club, uh, bought by the, 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 the family that owns it now, the Dolans. They're wonderful, wonderful people. Um, but I've been there, you know, 13, 12, 13 years in, in Cleveland. Um, and, I, you know, at some point, I think there's a shelf life for everyone. And uh, what I did my last year, because I had – you know, I had this sort of this young group that was coming and we were getting picked off. You know, I mean, Paul DePodesta, boom, he gets a job over here. This guy's gone. We're starting to lose guys. And I've got Mark Shapiro sitting there who I thought was going to be a tremendous executive. And I, I said, look, you know, we're going to lose this guy. I still have, you know, three years left on my deal. So I talked to Larry Dolan. I said, Larry, I'm going to step back, take a year off. Um, I, I'm, I, I think we and I, I sort of laid out a succession plan. And, um, you know, I talked to Mark. I love Mark. He's a dear friend and almost like, a you know, he's like my younger brother. I mean, you know, and, and so uh, Larry, you know, bought off, signed off on it. He didn't want to, but he signed up and he said, look, and I said, I'm going to stay. I'll stay and run it. I'll, I'll, I'll bring Mark along. I'll let him, you know, get really deep into it and I'll stay as the GM. But after this year, and so what we announced it early and I was fully prepared uh, Booney to take a year off and sort of catch my breath, see what I wanted to do. Um, you know, we'd had a great run there. Um, and so I, you know, I got a call from, uh, from, from Texas, um, you know, right after the season ended and, um, Tom Hicks, you know, called, I went down, you know, talked to him and I didn't go down with the idea to take it. And I ended up taking it and, um, you know, it, um, so, you know, that's kind of how that happened, um, you know, that I, you know, I was going to like take a year off and, you know, kind of look at the landscape and kind of see where I was, catch my breath a little bit, have some fun. And I ended up jumping right back into the fire in Texas. And, um, you know, I was fortunate because I'd had a great owner in Cleveland. I mean, Tom Hicks, you know, was a tremendous guy. And, you know, it was a little different because Tom had just signed um, a rod to the, uh, the huge contract. And, you know, so, I mean, I come in, I'm inheriting a rod and Tom wants to win right now, just exactly the opposite of what I had just left in Cleveland, where we sort of build from the ground up. You always have a foundation of young players. You, you very cautious on the free agent market. And, you know, it was more like Cleveland was more like Tampa Bay. If you if you get what I'm saying, I mean, as far as the way that, you know, we we managed ourselves and Texas wasn't. And, you know, so we, you know, kind of jumped in and, you know, we had a, a lot of sort of star quality, 
Um, but, you know, it just didn't fit, and we didn't have a good year. Alex had another great year, but I remember that first year, you know, we'd signed some free agents. We gave away some draft picks. I mean, if I had to have a do-over, that would be my first year in Texas for absolutely sure. But that's, you know, Tom wanted to win, and, you know, that was the, the hat. He had hired me, and so, you know, after the first year, you know, we ended up, I ended up, you know, trading Alex after his MVP year. I hired Buck Showalter. I think maybe Alex might have stayed two years, um, but uh, hired Buck Showalter, changed the manager after the first year, and, um, you know, we ended up trading Alex and then started a rebuild, and I think that eventually culminated uh, because I stayed on after I left Texas. Uh, it culminated, I think, with those um, great years in sort of 2010, 11, 12, when Texas you know, had a chance to win a couple World Series. I had stayed on as the uh, sort of a senior advisor. But, you know, we really started that rebuild, um, you know, when we traded Alex. That was, I mean, because that was, you know, for people that, you know, looking back on those years, you go from Cleveland to you go to the early 2000s, the AL West, we were by far the toughest division in baseball. And that's when no doubt. it was it was the Mariners and it was the Oakland A's and it was the Texas Rangers and the Angels who won the World Series in 02. It was a tough league to to kind of inherit like, wow, OK, now we're going into the class. We better up our game. You mentioned the A-Rod thing. It, it's a time in baseball history. No one had ever signed for anything close. Alex was the first, you know, of that that big, big time money uh, contract. And there were probably a lot of challenges that went on with that. I know, Alex, <laughs> it seemed like, you know, just from the player's perspective, with not having true insight, it just player to player, we're looking across the field going, well, Alex is like, <laughs> he's taking over the world. You know, he's, he's running the Texas Rangers. It, it just seemed really complicated. But you said you traded him in, in 03. He was, the, he was the most valuable player that year. And I think you guys finished in last, and he still won the MVP. Uh, but take me behind the scenes of that Alex trade. I know he was thinking Red Sox. You got Cashman involved. And I know to add to that, you got Scott Boris that you could deal, you got to deal with as well. Uh, take me behind this. Take me behind the scenes. You get to Texas and now you're getting rid of the, the biggest contract ever signed by Tom Hicks, who wanted to kind of was reinventing the wheel a little bit himself. Yeah, that's, um, I, I tell you, you're right. That was a, you talk about a lot of balls up in the air. Um, that was that time. And, you know, we, again, I, I just didn't feel we were going to win. And, you know, and I had a good relationship with Tom. We, I talked to him a lot about it, about, you know, his franchise and, you know, what it was going to take and, you know, to, you know, to really get there. And that, you know, I said, look, there is no doubt. Alex is a great player. I mean, he fits right in you know, with, with the greatest players in the era. And I loved Alex. I mean, Alex was a, you know, he was a great kid. I mean, it wasn't, that wasn't the issue, but from a financial standpoint, number one, number two, you know, Alex did not want to be a part of a rebuild. So, you know, I think once Tom gave me the approval that if it worked, Alex had a complete no trade and your Scott Boris had come in, Alex had, you know, the ink was hardly dry on this long-term contract that he just signed and so, you know, we, uh, we had Alex fly into, um, into New York and met with us there. And, um, uh, you know, we said, look, Alex, we're going to do this rebuild. And, you know, long story short, we ended up, 
you know, he agreed to go to one of two teams, either Boston or New York. Um, you know, it took a little while. Um, and we said, okay. So we called them both. And uh, the Yankees <clears throat> uh, had just had a third baseman. Somebody just hit a walk-off home run. Was that an Aaron Boone uh, <laughs> shot right. that I heard around the world? They're and, joined, you know, at, they're so, joined at the hip. Yeah. So, that's that's know, right. And I, mean, and I was sitting in the booth with cat got my tongue syndrome. I had nothing to say yeah. about it. <laughs> well, you know, at the, at, at the end of it, we called him in cash room with John. He said, I'd love to do this. And, you know, and I said, look, you know, I mean, this, you know, this is way under wraps. I'm not going to acknowledge this, but if we were to make Alex available, would you be interested? And he said, no, we, you know, Booney hit this home run. He said, I, you know, I, yeah, we're not going to play him a shortstop. And so he basically backed out. Boston jumped in. We had a deal. Uh, put together with Boston. Um, quite frankly, it had John Lester, a very, very young, not even at the big leagues, John Lester in the deal. I think we could have had Hanley Ramirez. I mean, we had a, you know, a really, really nice package. But um, it, Boston ended up wanting to get some discount on the money. The union nixed the deal. The deal fell apart. Tom is now embarrassed. So we name, he says, we need to name Alex captain. We name, name Alex captain. Three weeks later, your brother blows his knee up and, um, you know, and I'm, I'm sitting there, you know, watching the sports ticker and I go, Aaron Boone's in the hospital. He has his knee. He's going to be missed the first six months. So I pick up the phone and call cash. And I said, look, I said, I, I'm not ambulance chasing here, but I said, I see. He said, John, let me talk to George. And I'm telling you, Booney, and we're, we're two days away from spring training when we had a chance to get a shortstop. And he said, you know, let me talk to George. So he and George and now George and Tom put something together. I ended up getting a much lesser deal. I think I got Alfonso Soriano came back in the deal. Um, you know, I had a young uh, infielder that, you know, I, I passed on Robbie Cano, believe it or not. Um, we take a wide areas. But so we make the deal and, you know, Alex is gone. I mean, it happened like that. And it's now the first day of spring training. And... Um, we had a second baseman there by the name of Mike Young, who, by the way, is another. I mean, if this guy wanted to be in the game and a, as a coach manager, I mean, he's just special, special guy. So I'm sitting in Buck's office. We've just gone through the press conference. We've made the, the shocking trade. You know, all the players are there. You know, Alex has cleared out his locker. And, you know, you go, wait a second. I, you know, the knock on the door, who's going to play shortstop? I'm telling you. Mike Young walked in, knocked on, on the door. Buck and I are sitting there, and he goes, hey, I know we're, we got a shortstop problem. He said, look, I, I, I can play shortstop. We're going, hey, Mike, you know, you came up as a center fielder. You finally become, you know, like an all-star second baseman. You're a, he said, John, Buck, I can play. I, throw me out there. I'll be your shortstop. Sure enough, you know, Mike went out and played great shortstop. And he went on to become, you know, a really, really good shortstop for years in the big leagues and was the backbone of that rebuilt, you know, sort of Cleveland team. I mean, uh, Texas team that had those great years, you know, in the World Series. So, you know, we lost a shortstop in Alex. Um, we started a rebuild and we kind of found the, the de facto captain and shortstop in Mike Young. It's funny how things happen. Yeah, Michael Young was great. Great player for a lot of years. Uh, after 05, you turn it over to John Daniels, but you stay on as senior advisor. And you're with the Rangers for up until 2013. You go to the World Series in, in 10 and 11. 
kind of the Josh Hamilton years. What a run he had for you. And Nolan Ryan as the CEO. Um, now, we're, we're, at a, we're at a time in baseball history where things are starting to change a little bit, as you know. It's the old school mentality of the Nolan Ryan days of, you know, we throw until we're done pitching. You know, 200 innings, whatever it takes. And and, and Nolan was really a proponent of that. Uh, what was that like for you, his approach to the game versus it was a changing game where we have pitch counts. And, you know, I remember around that time, uh, Steven Strasburg was the big pick out of San Diego State. They held him right. out of, of, of games, big games. Because of his future, I remember going, you know, and we talked about the World Series and how tough it is to win a ring, let alone multiple rings. But I remember them saying, no, no matter what, we're going to keep Steven out of, of these crucial games. And I'm thinking, you got to take, you got to strike when the iron's hot. This doesn't happen too often. So that's the mentality of the baseball and how it's changing. Yet you've got a, a Nolan Ryan as the CEO. Uh, how was that time in, in Texas Rangers uh, history? Yeah, yeah, it, it really was. Uh, I mean, Nolan is everything, you know, as advertised. I mean, you know, you talk about the, um, you know, the old walk softly, carry a big stick sort of guy, um, you know, slow talking, you know, understated Texas tough. Um, you know, I mean, obviously, you know, he was the, I mean, you've heard the stories, but I know when I was coaching third base, We'd be playing, you know, Texas, and the guys would come in and go, hey, the rookie come in and say, whatever you do, don't bunt on Nolan. Don't bunt on Nolan because the next time you're wearing it. And, I mean, he was just quietly very tough. He was, he was a straight shooter. And I think when he came in, um, you know, to take over as the uh, president of the Rangers, uh, he kind of brought that same mentality, uh, everything that you're saying. He didn't push anything on anybody. He wasn't that kind of guy. Um, you know, he had a great family. Um, you know, he would, you know, he would be involved in the meetings. He would offer, you know, what he did. He would have opinions on certain things, but, you know, he was open, you know, to listening to what was going on. But, you know, at the end of it, you know, there's just certain guys when they walk in a room that can command the room. Nolan was that guy. And, you know, he was, you know, he was a sweetheart of a human being, um, and I mean, still is. I mean, he's just a just a phenomenal guy, and he was for me. He was like the perfect, um, you know, he he was sort of the perfect president because, you know, he he, he realized he was not the guy in there on the day to day, and he could help, um, if you will, sort of put the culture together. He could sort of be the guy that, um, you know, when you look at you know, decisions on like you're talking about uh, on developing pitchers or on, you know, I mean, the Texas heat or, you know, different things that you Nolan was always that wise owl that would be there to offer an opinion and you paid attention to it. And I think that he was a big part uh, of what went on. He was very loyal um, to uh, the people that worked there um, and, and, and he embraced, uh, if you will, the younger guys, um, but they also embraced him. And I think at the end, there wasn't a decision that was made there that Nolan didn't in one way, shape or form sign off on. Moving to that 2014, you reunited with 
you know, longtime buddy of yours and rival. We talked about Cleveland Indians of the 90s. Uh, they were the mirror image of the Braves of the 90s in the National League. And, and old buddy of yours, Johnny Sherholtz, you guys team up, president of baseball operations. You take that position with the Atlanta Braves. Um, how were those three years? I know you started uh, – executing your plan that you did in Cleveland a little bit, signing those young players again. Uh, how was those yeah. three years getting reunited with Johnny? Yeah, it was, uh, Booney was awesome. I mean, I, I you know, at, at that time, I mean, I, there, there was no way I was now working at the network. I was having a blast. I was living a life, you know, it had been, you know, I mean, you, you've kind of heard a little bit of it, but it was, you know, that 24, seven, 365. I mean, I was like, okay, uncle, and, um, you know, so I'm, you know, I'm catching up. I've got grandchildren now. I'm having a blast. I'm, you know, my lovely bride, we're kind of cruising around, having fun, got my handicap down to scratch. I mean, I was, you know, I was living the dream. And, you know, John and Bobby, um, you know, they, they realized that, at, at, you know, I mean, they'd had that long, long run. And, you know, along the way, the farm system starts to get depleted a little bit. And, so for whatever reason, they said they wanted to make a change and, you know, they wanted me to come in and, you know, and I, I just really didn't want to do it. And at the end, I agreed to step in as the president. We were going to look to hire a GM, um, but we were going to have to do a rebuild. And I told him, I said, guys, every place I've rebuilt has always been, it's either a small market team or it's been an abject failure that needed a rebuild. And now I'm coming into a team that, you know, has arguably had the greatest run in the history of the game, and we're going to tear it down. Um, and I said, guys, you've you got to realize this is not going to be fun. It's not, you know, I, I think we can do it quicker than most clubs, um, but it isn't going to be fun. You know, we've got a lot of free agents that are coming up. Um, you, know, the, you know, the Braves will spend money, but they're not going to just go chase the last dollar. Um, it's just not how they operate. And so – you know, we started making deals and, you know, I mean, I agreed to do it. Um, we came in um, and, you know, we started, we traded a Jason Hayward right out of the gate. Um, we got a Shelby Miller, which we turned into Dansby Swanson and Ender Inciardi. I mean, we started making deals. We traded Justin Upton. We got Max Freed. Uh, we started drafting really well. We traded for draft picks. Um, you know, it was a, it was a pretty quick rebuild. Um, and, at the same point, we were doing the last two years in Turner Field before they, you know, went to the new Truist Park, which was a wild, it's a wild success down there. They just got a, it's just a beautiful, beautiful ballpark and things to do around, you know, I mean, you played in Atlanta and you, you know, understood very well what it's like there at Turner Field and nothing around the ballpark and, you know, where you go to this, it's like a city there. And it's, you know, all owned by the Braves and they got great restaurants and bars and places for kids and people to go. And, but we had three years of the rebuild and, you know, we never lost a hundred games, but we never, you know, lost less than 90. I mean, it was a, it was tough. Um, But we, we had these young players, you know, and Acuna and Albies and, you know, we drafted a Riley, we traded for a Swanson, um, we signed Freddie to a multi-year deal. He's the one guy that we held on to. You know, it's funny with Freddie um, because when you make decisions, we traded, you know, I mean, look, it, it's a who's who. It's Jason Hayward, Justin Upton, Craig Kimball, uh, Kimbrell. I mean, we, you know, we, we sort of gutted that team. And, you know, Freddie's kind of looking around going, you know, am I next? And, you know, quite frankly, you know, Booney, you have opinions on players from the outside. 
coming in. When I came to Atlanta, um, I liked Freddie, but I didn't love him. It was like, you know, I, I wasn't sure. I, I knew he was a good player, but I wasn't sure he was going to be a great player. I kind of looked at him, and I'm going, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I like the stance, the swing. You know, he's Mr. Happy over at first base. And, and I'll tell you, I, I got in that first spring, and I, I spent, you know, I mean, a month around him. Then I spent a half a season around him. And I saw that, you know, this guy is the real deal. He's a real deal as a player. He's a real deal eventually as a leader, not quite ready yet. Um, and so we went to Freddie and, you know, just told him, you're not going anywhere. If you want to stay and you want to be a part, it's going to be tough for three years. But if you want to be a part of something special, you're going to be the, the linchpin of this rebuild. We'll hold you. And Freddie said, I'm in. I'm in. And I'm telling you, it, you know, it was one of the best decisions we made was to hold Freddie um, because of not just his talent, but uh, because he's, uh, you know, he's a pretty special, special guy. And uh, it's when you have your best player uh, is also a, you know, a, a real true leader, um, you know, you're, you're, you're ahead of the game. So, you know, you look up at, uh, at the club and, you know, that young pitching that's over there now are a lot of guys that we either traded for or drafted, Ian Anderson, Max Freed. I mean, you sort of built the core in there. And, you know, they were able to take some of the other surplus and trade for different guys. And, um, you know, Alex Anthopoulos was, you know, the guy that I, I know for me that I recommended for them, um, you know, when my three years were up. And, um, you know, Alex has just carried that on and done a, a tremendous job over there. And, you know, they have, uh, you know, they had a lot of young players that were kind of ready to go that, you know, we'd either drafted or traded for and, um, they've made some great free agent signs and, you know, here they are, you know, I mean, competing for their fourth straight year of a pennant and, uh, Atlanta, I, I loved it there. It was a, you know, it's a great franchise and great people there. Um, but I went there truly because of my, my friendship and relationship with John Sherholtz and Bobby Cox and eventually ultimately Terry McGurk, who runs that club. Now Terry's been their longtime president and, you know, just, um, you know, amazing guy. So, um, you know, it was, uh, it was sort of a three years that I didn't expect Booney. I didn't expect it to happen. I thought it was the end of the line. Um, and that, uh, you know, that I'd kind of ride off into the sunset, having fun at the network and talking baseball. And, you know, at the end I did this little three year vignette with the, uh, with the Braves and, you know, I'm, I'm better for it. It cracks me up because when you, when you say, I, I completely can get inside your mind when you said, you know, I came over and I wasn't sure about this Friedman guy, you know, and the funny guy at first base, the, yeah, that's exactly yeah. how I think that's the first, okay, we're going to yuck it up at first. He's the yuck it up guy at first. All right. Yeah. So it's amazing how we think very similar at first glance. And I've watched this Freddie yeah. Freeman guy hit though. I mean, other than the Acuna guy who's ridiculous, Freddie Freeman yeah. can really, really hit. So you, you you got that one right. But it is funny how how our how our minds work and, and before we get to know somebody or, or get to you know get to see what makes him tick, our first thing is, Oh yeah, he's the funny guy at first base, always smiling, yucking it up. You know, kind of Sean Casey had that when he came on the scene. It's right. It's inter- it's interesting that minds think alike. Take me back, Johnny Hart ninety one. New GM for the Cleveland Indians, Johnny Hart now. Analytics in the game, 
general manager manager relationship. See that thing I see about uh, the manager of 2021. Then say in it, you know, we'll just use the term the the year 1991. Managers had a lot more say back then. Uh, Across the board, statistically, I'm not saying every franchise, each franchise is different, but as a whole, percentage wise, managers, the Lou Pinellas, the Tony LaRusses, the Bruce Bochies, the Bobby Cox, the Davey Johnsons of the world. Like you said, you mentioned a young, uh, you hired a young Mike Hargrove. Uh, different then than now. Let's just kind of go full circle on the game in 91, the game in 2021. The good, the bad, the indifference. Well, I'll tell you, we're going to meet a lot longer this podcast, but I'll, I'll you know, I'll, I'll sum it up. I mean, look, I, I mean, every era sort of has, you know, a different way. Um, we have had some, I mean, you know, almost seismic shifts um, in, you know, in some things, obviously, that we see every day on the field from, you know, the extra inning rule to the shift to, you know, the, I mean, the, the I mean, the terminology that's used. Um, to starting pitching being, you know, less valued. I mean, you could just, you know, I mean, you could just list a litany of, of things that have changed. And, you know, that's, that's part of what you deal with today. Um, obviously, I think uh, the, the front office and the GM and the ownership, um, you know, have changed as well. Um, and, and I think that, you know, and I, I don't think it's all bad. I mean, look, I'm, I, I jumped in, you know, I mean, the analytics era, I, would, I came in as sort of an older, you know, sort of dinosaur veteran guy in Atlanta, um, you know, and, and I, I made it clear coming in. I said, look, we're going to all the information that is out there, we, you are, we are crazy not to use it, um, you know, in, in spite of what people think of, you know, what went on in 19, in the eighties and nineties on where general managers made decisions or in the forties and fifties or in the twenties and thirties. I mean, at some point, you know, you're going to look up and you're going to, you know, you're going to, I mean, you're going to have a feel for what guys are doing. You're going to put some numbers together that are going to, you know, justify your decision. Um, but I, I, I think that, you know, the difference today is, you know, I'm not saying the de-emphasis of the eye test of, you know, of the, of the scouts. I, I just, you know, I, I, I always felt going in that I wanted to balance the two. And I think ultimately, you know, and that's the same thing with the manager that, you know, if, you know, there's always been a, you know, if you will, sort of, you know, you, you look at the, at the Tom Kelly's at the Billy Martin's at the Lou Pinella's at the Tony LaRusse's, I mean, at some point, these guys, you know, grew up, you know, sort of, you know, getting their gray hair through wisdom and, you know, watching the game and knowing what makes players tick and what situations do you want to pe put people in and knowing the pulse of the team, all of those things that, you know, that you know from having played it that, you know, that these guys, this is what, you know, this is what they did. And the manager sort of was gospel. Um, but, you know, and it's the same thing with the scouts, a scout that, you know, it had some success would come in and say, I want this guy. Look, at the end of it, you know, the balance that you have today, I think, is great. I think it, it helps uh, clubs make less mistakes. Um, but I also feel that the game sort of loses a little bit of its soul when it, it, it sort of gets away from, you know, that manager making that tough call. And you're having to wonder, is it, is it prearranged or is he, 
feel, you know, a little subservient to, you know, sort of the model or the numbers uh, that are being created from the analytic team upstairs. You, you know, it, are, are managers getting hired today because of their uh, ability to embrace, um, if you will, sort of an analytic-driven front office? Um, and, and I'm not saying that that's the case. And I, I don't, you know, I'm not saying that it's good or it's bad, but I think that that is a part of what you're seeing in the hiring. I mean, you know, the guy that started in a ball and sort of worked his way up as a manager and, you know, then was a coach for a number of years and comes in. Yeah. I mean, if you've got, you know, um, a guy that doesn't embrace what's going on, you know, sure. You're, 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 that's a bad hire. But if you've got a guy that is, it can embrace it and can do it, but also has, if you will, sort of the autonomy to, you know, make his own decisions and has sort of been trained, if you will, in the minor leagues to make some of those tougher decisions. You know, I, I think that to me, that's a little bit of the missing piece now. Um, I, I'm not saying it's not as much fun. I had a blast in Atlanta. Um, the analytics guys are, you know, they're, they're dedicated. There's a, there's a, there's a, you know, I mean, these guys are, you know, they're good and you do get a variety of information. I think that where the great clubs, you know, I, I look at the clubs that I really get inspired by now. Uh, I look at the brewers, um, you know, they don't have the biggest payroll, but they've got enough, but they've got a manager that's, you know, really good. They've got a very sharp, brilliant front office. I look at Tampa, I look at Oakland, you know, they're, they're all a little bit different. Um, but, you know, I, I look at a, a, a Bob Melvin and, you know, again, you've got a, you know, you've got a front office that is bright, that's quick. Um, they were sort of the analytics pioneers, if you will, over there, Billy and, you know, David Force, they do a great job. But I think that these people also get the other component um, that I think, you know, makes the game really special. And that's the, you know, sort of the, you know, getting the player right, uh, creating the atmosphere, giving the manager a level of, you know, of autonomy. Um, I, I, you know, I, I mean, it's not, you know, numbers, numbers are great. And, you know, I, and I, I will say this too, that I think, you know, I look at San Francisco and I look at Farhan and hiring Gabe Kapler, who right now would get my vote as National League manager of the year and there's not a more analytics driven guy than Gabe. Um, and he was hired by Farhan, but I, I do know this, that, you know, I, I, I've spent time around Farhan and I think I love because he is so brilliant, but he's such a great people person and he's so great with staff and letting them go and then providing information. I mean, it's, uh, they've got a pretty formidable thing going on over there. And I, I think that, you know, Gabe sort of, you know, it was a manager that sort of was like a, you know, an early in his game in Philly, it didn't work. And he comes over in his second go round, a little more experience. Um, he now has the complete confidence in the front office. Um, he's sort of taking, you know, he's got a different way of managing. Um, but I can tell you this, there's no better people person that's out there. I mean, this guy is connected to his players. He's doing, you know, so I don't know that you can lump the whole thing together. I just like the, I just, you know, like having, you know, managers with the ability to, you know, if you will, to sort of manage their way. I like having an analytics team combined with, um, you know, I think the eye of the scout, um, you know, the eye of the evaluator to make decisions on players. Um, you know, I know some clubs in the draft, they have a model. If this guy doesn't fit within that model, 
height, weight, age, you know, exit velocity, spin rate, then they're going to pass on. And sometimes you miss on, you know, what I think is a, is a critical component in making decisions on players is the, is the human piece, the intangibles, the, you know, the, uh, you know, the, the ability to adapt, the adjustability, the, um, you know, the, I mean, just all the dynamics that go into, uh, you know, the makeup of a player. I think those intangibles sometimes can outweigh, if you will, a little better numbers from another player because of the intangibles, just me. But um, so yeah, has the game changed? Yeah. Um, might it go back a little bit to, you know, I, I think people, you hear a clamoring. I know we talk about it at the network, you watch games and, you know, we're, 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 you look at sort of a, uh, I'm not saying a less emphasis on fundamentals, but I think you look at the, you know, I mean, there's a lot of defensive lapses that you see a lot more than you used to. I mean, runs were, you know, harder to come by. I mean, the game has become a power game. Um, you know, it's become a bullpen game. Um, it's, you know, I'm not saying it's not fun to watch it, but, you know, I mean, the, you know, the little thing, moving a runner, um, you know, the play in the hit and run speed. I still think that, you know, there's going to be a place in the game for, you know, the, the great athletes that, you know, can, you know, the five tool sort of guys or even the four tool, take the power out and, guy can hit he can defend he can play multiple positions he can really run the bases he's a two-base runner he can score from first on a ball in the alley i mean hey he can steal your base in the eighth inning i want that guy i want that guy on my team he maybe he doesn't have the exit velocity there's you know launch angle but this guy can sure as heck help me win games and it's kind of fun to watch so i you know i, I believe me i certainly don't have the answers and i'm not a i'm not an old school guy that's uh, sitting back there. I've lived in the new school and, you know, deal in the new world. And, you know, and I, I still love the people that are in the game, but um, gosh, B it, um, you know, there's a little bit of magic that's sort of, you know, that's kind of missing right now for me a little bit. No. And I agree with you. There is a perfect storm out there. And you mentioned the analytical, I, I think we would be foolish. I think it'd be naive not to embrace uh, the technology that we have at our fingertips right now. I know as a player, uh, I, I'm a little bit envious of the current player, you know, because I was a, a baseball geek. I wanted every piece of information I could have on my opponent. But you give me a piece of video, man, that was gold to me, and I'd watch it over and over. Today, to the thought of me being able to sit in my locker on an iPad and, and to study, I would sit down two hours before every series and I would watch every pitcher on that opponent that was coming into town. And, and to see the last time I faced that opponent, to see their last two starts, I'd be, a, I'd be in hog heaven. Trust me on that. So I think we'd be naive to, to just dismiss, you know, the people that call themselves old school and dismiss this new way. Well, I, I think you're just being foolish. I think you need to embrace the technology and take all of it you can. Uh, and, and based on my experience just in life and, and, and in the family that I've, that I've been born into, you know, I had a grandfather that played in, in maybe the heyday of baseball in the, in the fifties and the Ted Williams days and, and the stories that I wish I could hear one more time now, but I remember coming after a game early in my career, Johnny and, and Gramps was always there when we played the Padres and he was always the last guy I'd talk to all my, you know, relatives are there and you got to say, say hi to everybody, but I always go to grandpa. 
And oh. no matter what kind of day I had, he always, what about that fourth at bat, Brett? Ah, geez, back in my day, we would have done it this, you know, feller. And, <laughs> I'd say, Gramps, listen, the game is different now. We're really good players. By the way, we're better than you. Oh, no. Guys, when I played, we were the best. So I always told myself, I'm not going to be that guy that says my day was the best. Of course, we all have our days. You know, some of my fondest memories are when I was a kid growing up in the 70s and 80s in that National League with the big bad buckos and and the big red machine and my dad's Phillies. Man, those are some of my fondest memories. I also love the career I had in that generation. You know, obviously, I played in it. Uh, I saw the great players of, of the 90s and the early 2000s, and I'm always going to have a soft spot for that. But I think it's wise of us as baseball people uh, – I think the kids of today could learn a lot from my generation, could learn a lot from my dad's generation. That's That being said, I think my father's, your generation, my generation, we can learn quite a bit from this modern generation as well. And I think that when I say perfect storm, I think combining the two, baseball has been around for a hundred plus years, <laughs> And it's going to continue to go on. We need to evolve with the game. We need to change with the game. You know, I don't dismiss the kids today. There was this big controversy months back of unwritten rules, written rules. And I thought about it because I was asked about it a lot on my take. And it doesn't matter what I would have done in my day. You know, we had a certain amount of rules. You know, I wouldn't do some of the things the kids do today. But that's not for me to judge. I'm an ex-player. And I thought about it and I thought, what are unwritten rules? You know what? Unwritten rules are whatever the current players decide the unwritten rules are, not what the 2004 unwritten rules were. You know, it was an eye for an eye. You, you get caught stealing a sign, you're going to wear one in the neck. And that's the way it was when I played. But that doesn't necessarily mean it is the way these guys decide and history will judge them. But I think there is a perfect storm out there. I think there's uh the technology, like I said, the technology, what you can use from the analytical side. But you made a good point, too. The human element is still the most important thing. As a manager, you need to be able to walk to that mound, look at that pitcher in the eye, ask questions, and find out what comes out of that pitcher's mouth. And that makes my decision whether I keep you in the game or I go to my bullpen that I have ready. It's all about people. This game's always been about people. It's always been about reading people. The greatest managers I ever played for had not only had that presence, like you mentioned with Nolan Ryan, when you enter a room, but they had that uncanny ability to get the best out of each player, each personality, the egos of players. You know, Davey Johnson was one of the best managers I've ever played for. He had the, he knew who he had to kick in the butt. And who he had to give a hug to, to get the same result. That's the ultimate manager. Combining the two, there's a perfect storm somewhere in there. But I don't think anything be, I, I think you should embrace everything that you have available to you uh, to formulate that perfect team, that perfect plan, that perfect uh, core in that clubhouse. If you're a general manager putting together a team, you don't just throw guy talent against the wall and say, yeah, I'll take all those guys. No. How do they fit in that room? Those are the true great baseball people to know 
they know how to pick out personalities and who fits together to make a great team. I've only had that a couple times where where that that team chemistry was unbelievable. That two, 2001 Mariner team I was on was unbelievable, and I didn't believe in chemistry. I came from a Braves team that won 104 games, and it was we're the best team in the league. And Bobby Cox says, I put the lineup up and we just go steamroll our, our opponent. And that's what we did. Until 2001, I didn't believe in chemistry. All of a sudden, I saw what happened that magical year, and I was a believer. Because we had a lot of great players, but to do what we did that year and win 116, that's like a, a magic carpet ride. That just doesn't happen. That's a once-in-a-lifetime thing. So I became a believer. Uh, like, like you said, this would take – we could talk about this for hours and hours, but that's my <laughs> mini seven-minute take on it. Hey, I, I, I know, Johnny, you got to get going. I wanted to, no, no, to no, wrap no, up no, with listen, a few more, but listen, if you have anything to expand on that. Yeah, I, I do. I, I, you know, I, I would like to almost just have a tape of your words because it, uh, you know, I, I, I think you touched on all the things that, you know, those of us that, um, you know, have sort of come before, um, you know, are dealing with. And, you know, because of the love of the game and the, you know, as you said that, you know, you go back, uh, we all have been, you know, either coached by managers you know, from 20 or 30 years, you know, playing ahead of us and they were coached by. So there is this sort of thing that goes down. Um, but I, I, I think this, that um, the information that is out there today, there are more players like Brett Boone that are out there now than maybe there used to be. And follow me on this, because I heard you say that when it came out and if I could sit and, you know, get the edge and, you know, get on my iPad and go to watch it. That's, that's just scratching the surface for the amount of information that is out there now for players. It's not just for your opponent on, if you will, sort of your advanced scouting. If you went into advanced scouting room today, it would be so much different than it was 20 years ago. And you wouldn't even know it 40 years ago. So the information that's out there is amazing, not only for preparing a team to play, not only for who you're going to draft, not only for the trade you're going to make, uh, but also for the individual player. And this is where it kind of hits me that uh, you, you, you still have to go back to the player. What information? Let me just, for example, you take a guy like Madison Bumgarner and you say, he's gonna, we're going to have to give him certain information, but this guy's a throwback sort of guy. He's sort of, you know, give me the ball, I'll go figure it out. And, you know, and then versus, say, you know, a new guy that comes in, say it's a, a Max Freed or a, a younger. And so you're going to be able to approach it a little bit differently. For me, the information out there for players, who gives it to them and how do they give it? How much do they give? Still comes down to what you said at the beginning. You've got to know people. You've got to have a feel for how much information, what information to give, because, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's harder because the, the pitchers are all, everybody's throwing a hundred, a hundred. Um, you know, everybody's got a, you know, a 92 mile an hour slider. You've got split fingers, like, you know, off the table, you look up and you're going, man, hitting's hard today. Well, but you also have got a tremendous amount of information that's coming to the pitchers, you know, how to attack hitters, you know, it's getting a lot more precise. So I, I think that, you know, information is here. 
those that don't embrace it aren't going to be in the game long. They, they, you know, but I'm telling you, you know, you said it best at the end, everybody can learn from what's going on. It is still a people business. There are still team concepts that you have to have still give me a team that can play airtight defense. You concentrate on catching the ball. You hit the cutoff, man. You keep the extra base, you know, from happening, um, you know, in the late innings, if you, if you're the right kind of hitter, you've got to move a runner, you know, you've got to be able with two strikes to put the ball in play with a runner at third base. Those are all, you know, because at the end of the game, it's not about numbers. It's about, do you win or lose? People want to follow a winner. And, you know, I've always tried and, you know, I've said it all along. I mean, for me, you know, it's about the players. It's about my ability to make decisions on players. And fortunately, we've been able to get some good ones. But I want to get players that are going to, that are going to fit in a winning, on a winning team. They're going to help you win, are going to help on the culture of the winning. Um, and that's not always necessarily the guy that is a one-dimensional slugger or, you know, the pitcher with the, the best arm or the best spin rate. That's not it. I'm looking for other factors combined. So I, I thought what you said there, Booney, was great. You should go back and listen to it and then just, you know, keep those thoughts in your mind. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I was talking to Albert Bell. We talked about it. One of the, one of the best premier run producers. He was talking about moving the runner. He said, and I said, Albert, if you're hitting 50 homers and 50 doubles in a season, and you're willing to move the runner in a 6-2 game because that's what you do and that's how you play the game, don't think that everybody else in that lineup isn't going to take notice. And when Albert Bell, if Albert Bell does it, best run producer in the game, I sure as hell am going to do it. And that breeds, that goes down to the 26 man on the roster. And if you got 26 guys, you talk about how you create chemistry, how you create team camaraderie, a real team the the, I believe it was 2015 Kansas city Royals, the current Tampa Bay devil or Rays that don't have a ton of star power in that lineup. They, they traded for Nelson Cruz, but other than that, you just got a bunch of good baseball players that play all over the ballpark, play the game, right. And guess what? You look up, they're leading the division every year. With a small payroll, because they play the game right. They're unbelievable. They use analytics, but they play the game right. That's the, the, what's not talked about in this game. By moving a runner over to third base for the, your partner that hits behind you that hasn't driven in a run in a week, he hits a weak can of corn, sack fly, scores a run. Guess what? All of a sudden, in his mind says, I can drive in a run again. That makes him better, exactly. which makes the guy behind him better, which makes the guy in front of him better. And that's because you played the game right. And I think that's what's missed in today's game is, yes, we do it, but why do we do it? Because it creates a winning atmosphere. And that's missed in the big picture a lot. And it's not talked about enough and should be talked about because that's what great teams are built on. Winning the game. Booty. I'm telling score you, a point. A, it's one to nothing. If it's one uh-huh. to nothing, every inning, leadoff walk, steals second, moves them over, sack fly. That's demoralizing for the other team. Here they go again, playing the game right. It's one to nothing before the national anthem's over. I'm telling you, it's demoralizing. I've been on teams that do it to others. You know, it's interesting, uh, and you know, you you go back to the Cleveland teams and. I know you got to see what we did, and people go, all they talk about are the sluggers. 
But if you look at that club, it was a great defensive team. We really could defend. And we had, you know, three guys when we had Robbie Alomar, Biscal, and Lofton, we had three guys that could steal 50 to 100 bases. And, you know, there was, there was always action on the bases. There was always the threat of a steal. It, it forces the pitcher to throw more fastballs. It just, you know, I mean, you, I, I think putting a team together to have, you know, all of those components – um, you know, is, is a part of it. It's not, you know, if we were just a big team of sluggers and couldn't catch the ball with an average pitching staff, you're not going to win many games. But if you've got a team that has offensive versatility and you've got, you know, a team that's going to catch the ball and catch the ball well, you know, you're going to win games. You're going to, you know, you're going to win 90 games. It's just going to happen. It's just the way it is. But, well, I'll, I'll give you an example on base running. The California Angels of the Socia era, especially the 2002, they come in to play us. And during our team meetings, you know what I said? Guys, these guys are going first to third. They're putting pressure on the defense. Constant pressure. Ichiro Suzuki's our right fielder. He's not used to put people putting pressure on him because they know how good of a catch-throw guy he is. All of a sudden, you start putting pressure on every defender, every single play, they start to think about it. Those with the great that that's what the great teams do. They put pressure on the defense, and it's constant pressure. It's running on contact from third with the with the infield drawn in, and they get a great jump. And all of a sudden, you're not as sure as you once were. That's that's another uh, part of this equation that that is so important. That's not talked about running the bases. Oh man, I could go on, Johnny. You know, we could go on and on hey. about this. I, 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 I got to get you out of here eventually, though, and I got one thing I wanted to touch on before I let you go, and that's the general manager, uh, your role in a clubhouse. I've been a lot, around a lot of general managers. I've, I've had a lot of general managers, a lot of guys I've really liked. Some, uh, I could uh, give or take yeah. them. Uh, yeah. How close Listen. can you be with, with the player? Can you uh, – there, there's a fine line there. You've got to trade those guys. You might have to release those guys. It, it, it's a balancing act. Um, I'm just interested in that dynamic and how did you approach being in that clubhouse, being around the team, traveling with the team, your interaction with players. Were you careful? Uh, did you play it close to the vest? Give me your version of it. Yeah, I, you know, that's, uh, that's another just a great question. Um, I think early on um, in my uh, general manager career, I was, you know, definitely a, you know, a lot more of a, you know, relationship guy with the players. Um, you know, when I say that, I mean, I always was a relationship guy with the players, but I mean, you know, the ability to really connect. I think it was a part of, you know, I hadn't, I was not that far removed from the field, number one. Number two, um, you know, I, I think these were young guys, um, and, you know, we all just were close and I, I always felt comfortable in the clubhouse. I didn't have any problems going in there. I'd make sure I would go in, you know, win or lose. It wasn't, you know, front runner guy. Um, I like to come down and, you know, just kind of peek in on BP and see what's going on. I'd like to always talk to a player, every player, when I see him, ask about their family, find out what's going on. You know, I, I think more than anything, Booney, if I were going to be a, a give advice to a young GM, um, it's just to be authentic. Uh, be the, your authentic self. 
And, you know, I mean, I'm an encourager by nature. I like people by nature. Um, I like and respect players by nature. And, you know, so I, 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 I went there and, you know, I mean, look, there were some players I'm sure that, you know, didn't, you know, I mean, I would, you know, you, you got to do your job. And I'd always tell them, I said that the office door is open, you know, feel free to walk on in, but you know, you don't be afraid if you're going to, cause you're going to hear the truth. It may not be what you want to hear. Um, but I, and I think as I, you know, as you go along in it, um, I always had that relationship with players. I wasn't, I didn't travel as much, um, you know, later on, um, you know, when you go on the road and it's not just the players, it's staff as well. Um, you know, I mean, I, I'm not saying the game has changed in that regards, but, uh, you know, you, it, I mean, it's hard to, you know, say, you know, go to dinner. I didn't, you know, say, Hey, let's meet out and have some drinks and go to dinner with the players. I never did that. Players are, you know, they're going to do what they do. Uh, you know, if I saw a guy at breakfast, I'd, you know, pop over, you know, he's there by himself or I'd invite somebody over, but you know, at night, you know, but you know, during the day, during the business working, I was, a, you know, I was in, I liked, I liked players. I mean, I was in the game because, you know, I mean, I, I like the guys, I like the staff, but afterwards it's a little hard. You know, there's times, you know, as a GM that, you know, you're going to be the one guy eating by yourself on the road, you know, staff's going to go out, but, you know, I mean, you know, at some point they know that, you know, at some point you're that guy that might, you know, make a change. Uh, I tried to create a, uh, an open atmosphere around, you know, the club and the clubhouse and me that, um, you know, as the leader that, um, we were going to have a relationship and, you know, it's, I mean, it is what it is because you're right. I've had to release guys that, you know, I've had a great relationship with. I've had to trade guys. You mentioned Sean Casey. I had to trade case. You know, I mean, it just, you know, I mean, hundreds of guys and, you know, but along the way, that's part of the business and they know it. And I think in today, the thing I did find, you know, sort of the, the latter part of it, I, I, I'm not saying that the players, you know, don't have the relationship, but it, it, it almost doesn't matter now who is, you know, the GM. I mean, they do have a relationship. You're going to do a contract. You're going to have a professional relationship. But I don't know that, you know, I mean, players now have a bigger group around them than they used to. I'm not saying everybody's got an entourage because they don't, but, you know, you've got, you know, you've got a guy, you've got a nutritionist and you've got somebody that you talk. I mean, it's just a different sort of a mix. There's a bigger world out there, um, if you will, sort of for players than there used to be. And, you know, the GM has a role that, you know, that is maybe different than it was when I was, you know, I mean, we were kind of a little more of a freewheeling, um, you know, I mean, we'll talk it out. We'll laugh a little more together. We'll have some fun together. We'll be irreverent together, you know, and we'll be tough together when we have to. But, um, you know, you do, you, you do know there's a line. They know there's a line. We all do. I blur. I was probably a guy that blurred the lines a little bit more. I probably was. I was that guy. Best trade you ever made. Um, it's uh, one of, one of two, uh, Kenny Lofton for Eddie Taubensey. Uh, was a great trade that got us a center fielder. We were desperate. We had looked looked high and low. We had all these, you know, young good players, and uh, Lofton got called up. Charlie Manuel helped me make that trade. Charlie was my manager in AAA, and uh, Lofton was playing for Tucson. Charlie was in Colorado Springs, and 
you know, because I'd put out an APB. Any, anybody sees a center fielder you like, let me know. Charlie called. He said, you got this Lofton guy down here, John. You got to come. So we went in. We ended up making a trade. He got called up in September. Had a terrible September. They needed a catcher. Tobinson had a pretty good year. Young, both young players. That was a great trade. And the other was uh, Omar Vizquel. Uh, they had Alex bumping on the door. You know, I watched um, uh, Omar as a young player. Um, I always, you know, the first thing that caught my eye was the way he threw the ball around the infield. And, you know, it never hits his hand. It never hits his glove. He sort of boom, boom, it's in and out. You know, just a wizard defender. And I felt we needed that. Um, and uh, it's funny, you had mentioned Edgar. I was down at Carlos Baerga's, uh, um He sort of had an, uh, an event down in Puerto Rico. So I flew down to Puerto Rico and I'd been talking to Woody about trying to get a shortstop. This was like in just as we were opening up our new ballpark. And I had Felix Vermeen was my shortstop. Felix is a solid, steady player, you know, but we weren't going to the promised land with Felix. So I've been talking to him about Omar just a little bit, you know, feeling him out. And so, you know, I started talking about some players, but I, I went down and um, at this event for Carlos in Puerto Rico um, was Edgar Martinez. And Edgar and I knew each other because Edgar had played third base in Chattanooga when I was managing in Charlotte. And uh, Edgar, by the way, was a hell of a defender um, before he, you know, kind of hurt his arm. But anyway, so Edgar and I are talking. And so I'm asking him, I kind of, you know, I'm saying, well, let me get a feel here from Edgar. So I kind of threw out, I said, well, tell me about Buner. Tell me about Alex. Tell me about Griffey. Tell me about, you know, Booney. Tell me about the. And so, you know, he's telling me all about his team. I said, well, uh, tell me about, uh, 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 let's see, your short, your short, this gal. He goes, oh, John, he said, I love this player. This guy's a great guy. He's a great kid. He's awesome. He, I think he's going to hit. And so that night, <laughs> believe it or not, I pulled the trigger on the trade. Uh, Felix Vermeen and Reggie Jefferson to uh, Seattle for Omar. And that was sort of the last missing piece for our really great Cleveland run. And, you know, so, you know, the next day I had to go back and Edgar already wouldn't even talk to me. But um, so we ended up, I think those two trades right there, probably, um, you know, it's still to be determined whether, you know, Dansby Swanson might end up being, you know, in that if he continues to go along. I mean, some of the later trades we made, Max Freed. But I think the two that really stand out for me or that have, that have stood the test of time have been uh, Kenny Lofton and Omar Vizquel. Worst trade you ever made? Um, Brian Giles for Ricardo Rincon. I, I always say that, you know, I mean, we, we just had so much depth. You mentioned it earlier. Um, I, and, you know, we had, you know, we were trying to perpetuate the run. And, you know, Brian had been sitting basically for two plus years. I knew he was going to be a great player. I should have waited. It's not that I shouldn't have traded Brian because I never had room for him. But I should have traded him for, you know, an impact piece or put him into a deal for an impact piece. Instead, I got a situational left-hander. Uh, and I, there is no doubt in my mind, if I had to do a, a do-over, it would be that trade. <laughs> I still remember. I still remember. I still remember a sinking feeling in my stomach when I hung up the phone and I go, I'm not sure. You know, we did the process. We loved the reliever. We were dying for a left-handed reliever. We just lost Paul Ossenbacher. And God, what a nightmare. I tell you, I didn't sleep for a year after that. Anyway, thanks for bringing that up. <laughs> Johnny Hart, that was a lot of fun, man. Memory lane. Hey. Uh, appreciate it. Uh, check, him, check out John Hart on MLB Network. Uh, 
does a great job. I got to do a little work. He gave me a little rookie rookie tour uh, back about a year and a half ago. But uh, yeah. check him out on MLB Network. I appreciate you coming on, John. This is a lot of fun. Uh, it was a pleasure. And what we do here each and every Boone podcast at the end is we bring in the voice of the podcast, Dan Levy, to ask a question from the fans. Dan? John, how are you? I'm doing fine, Danny. Doing good. Good, good. All right. This one comes from Jim in Lansing, and he wants to know this. Who is the white whale, the one player you tried to get, either sign or trade, that you just could not land? Ah, boy, Jimmy, that is a great question. There are so many. Um, Let's see. Recently, uh, the guy that when we were in Atlanta, I went after, I mean, almost weekly, uh, making calls was on Vlad Jr. Um, he signed at 16. Their club was back and forth. We thought we, and I did everything, you know, I could to try to get Vladdy. I never could get him. Um, I think uh, the other guy that, you know, we, we really tried to get uh, as a free agent, um, did everything we could, uh, was Roger Clemens. This was back in the day. I mean, I got to the wire. I remember Alan Hendricks called me and he said, John, you're looking good. You're down to the last three. Alan Hendricks was his agent. Um, and I'm going, man, I, Roger Clemens is our missing piece. I won't have to trade anybody, but I can really get a warrior out there. He came down to the wire and I got the call and he goes, John, sorry. We go into Toronto. And I go, Toronto, you can't go to Toronto and ended up. So, you know, those two there, I mean, there's a lot of players that I have made calls on that, you know, that I coveted. Um, but, you know, I, I mean, that one, Roger, I think, was the big one. And recently, you know, when he was in Toronto, we did everything for two years or a year and a half to try to get Vlad Jr. Just couldn't. So, you know, justifiably. <laughs> gotcha. And as a follow up to that question. Jimmy wanted to know what are the relationships like between agents and front office executives? Yeah. Uh, listen, I, I think that that varies, um, you know, with the GM. I mean, we're all people, we're all human beings and, you know, you're going to have some likes and dislikes. You're going to have, you know, some agents that are going to fit well with certain clubs and some don't. Um, I know that, you know, there have been uh, agents that, you know, where there's a group, if you will, and maybe, you know, you might have a better relationship with one agent and one group. Maybe you've had some, you know, some issues, you know, some raised voices, um, you know, with one guy. So you'll talk to another guy. I mean, at the end of the day, uh, you know, you just realize going in that you're on opposite sides of the aisle as far as the money. You're on the same side of the aisle about, you know, doing right by the player. Um, and in meaning that, you know, if you're, uh, if you're a club and you're trying to sign a free agent, you're trying to present to the player and his agent, um, you know, what the whole package, which is the team, you know, the, the city, you know, you're selling all the things that are around it, but you're also, you know, there's a financial component there as well. And so you've got to make that work. And that's usually where there's going to be tension between, you know, uh, if you will, sort of a, a GM and an agent. Um, I, I'll be I'll be candid uh, that I, I really tried to have a good relationship with every agent, um, but quite frankly, there were you know there were some that it just didn't you know it just didn't mesh, and so therefore, 
what I would do um, is I would put my assistant with, you know, that particular agent. I just knew that, you know, we, we just didn't jive and we just couldn't get deals done. And we just, you know, there was a missing piece. So I would, you know, I would shovel that, you know, we'd sort of separate the, you know, the mix and, um, and try to match up with an agent where there's some, you know, personal compatibility. But, you know, at the end of it, you, you, it's necessary part of the game. And I think you, you know, you are foolish, foolish if you don't do everything you can to try to have at worst a, you know, a respectful relationship with an agent. John Hart, thank you so much for coming on the Brett Boone podcast. We really appreciate it. Hey, it was a blast. Thank you all very much. My pleasure. Mailbag. All right, Booner, you know that sound, right? It's mailbag time, Dan. Mailbag time, Booner. All right. This Love one comes. Love the music. Love the music. Love the music. All right, Booner. This one comes from Lenny and Queens. Brett, what do you think of the thumbs down drama with the Mets? <laughs> uh, let's see. I think these are young players. I think they're talented players. Um, We've all made mistakes in our career, but I'll tell you this. It's unacceptable. It's ridiculous. Uh, You sign for – the one thing I learned in in my career, and I appreciate now as as I get a little bit older, is it's a a privilege to put on a major league uniform and do this for a living. You don't always appreciate it when, when you're going through the grind, when you're a young player. Uh, it's what you do. It's your job, but but it is a privilege. I think it's bad judgment. They're going to look back on this one day and say that was kind of really stupid. Uh, it's not how you endear yourself. Francisco Lindor signs a three hundred plus million dollar contract coming to a new city, especially a city the size of New York. Uh, one thing I know at being a player, I've got booed, I've got cheered. When I sign on the dotted line, I know what I'm signing up for. I know I'm paid handsomely to do a job, and my job is to play Major League Baseball. And if those fans want to come, as long as they don't cross a line, you know, there's no room for F-bombs and and talking about your family. But they have every right in the world to come to the ballpark, but pay for their ticket and, and yell at you as a fan to play better, especially when you're not playing well. These guys are hitting 210, 220, 240. And they're getting on fans, making millions and millions of dollars. Uh, these are two exciting players, great young talents of the game. Uh, you know, you need to know your place. You need to know what you signed up for. When you sign your name, you know that by making this kind of money, you have an obligation to, to carry yourself. First of all, that name across your chest, New York Mets, who signs your checks, you have an obligation to, to, to be a professional and represent them in the best way. The best way is not making gestures to the fans. Uh, I think they'll rethink this one day and, and see how misguided it was. It seemed probably like a cute idea. Now all of a sudden they execute the idea and, and you know, you've got, you've got uh, egg on your face. Uh, bad mm, move. Egg. Bad move, and, and it looks really bad, and, and you really need to take a look at, at what's truly important. Be a professional. Be a professional. Nobody likes getting booed. 
Not but that, you make a lot of money to get booed. Not that anybody cares about my opinion, but I think it's entertaining. The game's entertaining now when things like that happen. And I get what you're saying. You come from a school of thought of, uh, you know, let the fans do what they got to do and players should go out there. But when you can when you can do something and make a player react to it, like you said, there are people that would heckle here, here, you. Here, it's funny what, when you react I, to it. Dan, here's what I find. Okay, When I go to a, a, an opposing ballpark and I get booed, I take that as a badge of honor. They're booing the opponent. I, I love that. When you're getting booed by your home fans, it is tough. We care. You know, we act like we're tough and we don't care about what fans think. Nobody wants to be booed by their hometown fans. <laughs> no. But you've got to, there's a certain level of professionalism that you have to uh, have to take. The perks are so big in Major League Baseball. Some of the, some, and there are some negatives. Negatives are if you don't play good, people are going to let you know, and they got every right to let you know. Because when you do play good and you win, you're treated like a rock star. You can't have it both ways. Here's what I found playing good, winning cures everything. These fans are mad as hell at these guys right now. You start playing better and winning, those fans will embrace you. All right, Booter, next question. Next question from Lance in the Tucson area. And he wants to know this. Oh, Brett, how are the Trojans going to do in football this season? Lance, I wish I knew. (laughs) I would say they're the Trojans. Uh, I haven't even sat down and started looking at the college football docket yet. Uh, we're concentrating on on uh, the dog days and and MLB going down. Uh, the September runs about to to hit us, and then we got the postseason. I usually don't even. I'll, I'll watch SC, but uh, I haven't started formulating you know the best teams. And and to be honest with you, that's not really my passion. I'm a fan of sport. I'm a fan of all sports. Um, I, I enjoy watching college football. I enjoy watching the NFL game, but I'm not the one you'd go to for that analytical breakdown or, or really that guy in the know. So haven't paid attention. I'll be going to a couple SC games. I'll be supporting them. But outside of that, uh, I really don't put much into it. So Lance, if you're looking for a recap on that one, he's got no clue. Well, that's going to do it for this year's podcast. My name is Dan Levy. I'm the technical director and producer of the Moon Podcast. Executive producer is Rich Herrera. All the digital content that you see gets uploaded and taken care of by Liz Landry. Please share the Boom Podcast with neighbors and friends. Make sure you subscribe to the Boom Podcast so you never miss an episode of the show. While you're at it, please give us a five-star rating and share your feelings about the Boom Podcast by leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to the show. For all of us here on the Boom Podcast, my name is Dan Levy. It's been a blast. We'll do it again. Thanks for listening. See ya.